When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. Imagine you win $5 million in a contest. That is out of this world, knock your socks off, what dreams are made of, incredible. And then imagine you don't get the prize money. That is crushing to say the least. Are you picturing it? Okay, now try this on for size. Imagine the person who owes you the money is Mike Lindell. Yeah, the MyPillow guy. This is the actual situation facing my guest today, Bob Seidman. And believe it or not, the story gets even more unbelievable. But despite the otherworldliness, there are some takeaways from this story that will help you if you're ever in a situation where someone owes you money. But first, the pillow talk. Bob Zeidman, welcome to Money Rehab. Nicole, thanks for having me. So you have such a cuckoo bananas story. I want to hear all of it, all the details. It starts, though, in the summer of 2021. Mike Lindell, the very interesting, colorful CEO of MyPillow, announced that he was going to hold this cyber symposium to release data that allegedly proved that U.S. voting machines were hacked by China in the 2020 election, right? He said he was going to come out and pay $5 million to anyone who could disprove his data. So when you heard about this challenge, what were your first thoughts? I had my doubts. I'd written some articles you know, so I'm a, a software forensics guy. I'm the guy that the courts pay to hack into systems legally during a litigation over intellectual property like patents. So I thought to myself, initially when he came out with this, he didn't have it, but he kept saying that it was verified by cybersecurity experts. So I started to think, okay, maybe he does have the data that shows this hacking because he's got experts. In fact, I had contacted a lot of people in the Republican Party and the Trump administration either directly or indirectly, from with pressure from friends, because they said, Bob, you're the number one guy in the world. Now, you know, they exaggerate a bit, but I'm really good at this. And they said, uh, you should be looking into this voter fraud. So and you're a conservative that, Republican. We should. Right, I'm a conservative Republican. It's been out there. You voted you know, for, Trump. for Trump twice. Okay, well, let's put a pin in that. So your friend said, you're the number one guy. Look right. into this. So I wrote to different GOP, you know, influential people and offered my services. A few of them got back to me, like Carl Rove. And Carl Rove said, there seems to be nothing here, but thanks for your <laughs> offer. And then Mike Lindell announces his symposium where he's going to give $5 million. He's got the proof. He's going to give it to the public and he'll offer $5 million to anyone who can disprove him. 
an analysis of this kind of data is going to take months. And the symposium was three days. You had three days to analyze the data and disprove him. But friends of mine kept saying, look, it's $5 million. And I said, I'm not going to get $5 million. But the more I thought about it, I thought I'd be at an historical event where either he's going to release data and the election is going to be overturned because it was fraudulent or it wouldn't be overturned, but that would be big news too. And there Or you could make $5 million. Right. But I really didn't think realistically I was going to make $5 million. So I got my plane ticket to South Dakota, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And essentially within three hours of getting the data on day one, I knew it was fake. Wow. It wasn't election data. It wasn't related to the election. It wasn't proof of hacking. It seemed to be nothing. I'll throw in a few technical terms, but I'll explain them. I saw these files that were text representations of hexadecimal. So the way I explain it is, if you have the number 1069, if you saw it spelled out in English, the words 1000, like you write on a check. So what I did is I said, hey, what happens if I write the actual number instead of the words for the number, the text for the number? So I did that and I, so I converted it from text of a number to actual numbers, put that in a new file. And then I called that up in a text editor to, because that looked like text again. It kind of went from text to number to text. And I brought that up and I was looking at it. And because I'm so old and experienced, I noticed that the, the text that I saw, the words that I saw were commands for a very old word processor called rich text format. It's before Microsoft Word. But I also knew that Microsoft Word could still read these very old files. So I said, oh, what happens if I call it up in Microsoft Word? And then when I called it up in Microsoft Word, it was thousands of pages of gibberish. But when I say gibberish, it was not like random, you know, it's not like, you know, if you, if you call up a file of ones and zeros, it'll often look like gibberish. But this looked like perfectly formatted gibberish. It had bold, it had italics, all the commands were there. Hmm. It was no mistake. It's as if somebody sat there for hours and hours on end just typing random characters. And so what I realized, that's what somebody did. They probably had a program that generated random characters in a word docu- in a word processor, converted it to binary, converted that to text representations of hex, and then gave it to everybody and said, oh, look, this is really complicated data about the elections. Wow. <laughs> okay, so... On the third day, you submitted your findings. I guess, like, what do you do? You raise your hand or you're like, I got it. I got the answer. I'm thinking of some, you know, college, you're you're doing your scantrons or something. I don't know. I'd love to know what it actually looked like. But on the third day, you submitted your findings and you never heard back. So right. let's double click on that. How did that happen? Well, first of all, As an expert witness and as a writer, I just wrote up everything in detail. They gave us more data each day. And so each day I had to rewrite the report for the new data they gave us. And I I kept thinking, okay, this is how they're going to win. They're just going to keep throwing data at us. And on the third day, I had another eureka moment where I figured out how I could just describe, because they gave us hundreds of gigabytes of data. It's just even to open up, and it was 509 files, even to open up and look at each file would take a long time, but I figured out that there was a key. They were All these files were created shortly before the symposium, which was nine months after the election. So my argument was, oh. 
you know, if they were created right before the symposium, they can't be data showing hacking of the election. And I just wrote, to step back, like, how did Mike Lindell think or argue that this data proved foul play? Look, Mike Lindell wrote a bio, an autobiography that I read when I was writing my book because I wanted to understand him. And if you know, right. he was a drug addict, a crack cocaine addict, a gambling addict. And he he found religion. He became a religious Christian and gave all that up. But my belief is that he still has an addictive personality, except now he's addicted to politics and Trump. Mm. And so he would not hear anything that disagreed with him. And by the way, the, the person who sold him the data is a known con artist, it turns out, after researching all this, who has conned many people. He's been in many, many lawsuits for fraud. And basically, he understood he's like the, the drug dealer who understands Lindell's addiction. And he said, hey, you know, it's almost you could picture him on the street corner, you know, opening up his trench coat and saying, I've got data that proves that Trump really won. And Lindell needs that so badly, he bought it for $1.5 million, it turns out. Jeez. And then anybody who, who disagreed with him, he fired. And he surrounded himself with people who just agreed with him. That's what Lindell's doing. Wow. And you also disagreed. Yes. It turns out. So, uh, you know, I submitted my report. I submitted it first to the Copyright Office. Uh, so that way I'd have proof that I had written the report. I suspected right. that they would never acknowledge it, which they didn't, until I brought my lawsuit. Hmm. Okay. So... Yes. Spoiler alert. You did hire lawyers. You filed uh, an arbitration lawsuit. What motivated you to do that? Like, did you think once you were there, you go through this data, you have all these smart people around you, you figure it out in record time. Did you think you were going to get one of those big checks like you see with the sweepstakes, like $5 million to Bob Zeidman? Like, what did you think was going to happen? I really thought what happened was going to happen. I thought they would lose my entry and claim I just never submitted anything, which is basically they just ignored me. They didn't tell me anything. And so the real reason for the lawsuit was to bring this to the country's attention. This was dangerous. He's going around still claiming that China hacked our election system. Hmm. And uh, I suspected that if I had a lawsuit going and if I won the $5 million prize, which I, I wasn't sure was going to happen, but I thought at least the lawsuit will be publicity, more people will pay attention. And sure enough, you know, we have a very results oriented society. I found this out in the past for a lot of things. If you prove that UFOs don't exist, nobody really wants to talk to you. But if you even say UFOs do exist, you know, you, you prove a positive, you don't even prove it, you just state it, everybody wants to talk to you. So here, you know, basically getting them $5 million is what piqued the media's interest. And suddenly people wanted to talk to me and I became world famous, even though nothing was different except a panel of three arbitrators agreed with me. So a quick, less sexy side note here, arbitration lawsuit is commonly referred to as kind of the boring cousin of litigation, right? There's no judge, there's no jury, there's no courtroom. This is not a law and order type episode. Can, can you tell us more about the lawsuit? How long did it last? So it lasted a year and a half. Lindell's legal team quit after 
three to six months. And so we had to start over again. And how did you even get your lawyers to begin with? Did they work oh. on contingency? Yeah, so good question. So I had to do this on contingency. This was a very expensive lawsuit. And that's hard to do. But I have connections. And one of them pointed me towards Bailey and Glasser. I, I wasn't familiar with them. They're, I, I would call a medium-sized law firm. And they don't deal in much intellectual property, which I deal in. But they would do it on contingency, which was a big factor. And what were Lindell's lawyers arguing? I mean, it seems cut and dried, right? There was this challenge. You beat the challenge. There was supposed to be a payout, period, the end. What was their argument countering that? So they had a very difficult catch-22. And I've got to tell you, it was one lawyer, the new lawyers hired, um, Alec Beck was his name. And I'll tell you, he was in a tough situation, and I'm not sure if he realized how tough his situation was. The agreement I signed, before I could look at the data at the symposium, I had to sign this agreement. And it said I had to prove, to win the $5 million, I had to prove with 100% certainty that the data was not related to the election. That was the term, related to the election. Hmm. So... We anticipated what their strategy was going to be. In fact, the first lawyers they had who, who quit, they actually responded to our letter with their entire strategy, which is really stupid, I've got to say. I mean, you know, the response in a letter, you know, if somebody writes you a letter saying we're about to start a lawsuit, the correct response, and I know this, is you're wrong and we'll show it at court. Instead, they said you're wrong and here's why which was beautiful because now they can't back off of that. That's their official statement. The new lawyer couldn't back off it either. He was representing the client. This is the client's statement. So the point was they were going to say, Mr. Zeidman did not prove to 100% certainty. But our strategy was, there was the case took place in Minnesota where there's a consumer protection law that says any contest that's unwinnable is illegal. So our argument was, if I had to produce proof that was mathematically 100%, that is impossible to do. Therefore, the contest is impossible to win, and it's illegal, an illegal contest. Okay, so tell the folks at home, Bob, what the panel ultimately decided. Well, they ultimately decided that I was right, that I had proved that the data was not related to the election, uh, and so I was to be awarded $5 million. Well, not only that, but you also got a 10% annual interest rate in accordance with Minnesota law, right? Well, we've filed for that. I think that will be approved probably, but that hasn't been ruled on. Uh, Mike Lindell has filed a very interesting challenge. His lawyers wrote it, an appeal. They say the arbitrators were biased, which is not a basis for appeal because we had every they had every right to vet them. I couldn't tell you what their politics are and nothing that in their opinion reflected anything about politics. But what's interesting is in his appeal, he says, we'll tell you why we believe this later on down the road. And you can't really file a court case where you say, we think we're right, but we're not going to tell you. Um, you just can't do that because look, every criminal in jail will write a letter to a judge and they do this saying, I'm innocent. And if you just said, oh, that's good enough for a retrial, 
you know, our system would collapse. The judges have to have a threshold where you've got to say, I have new evidence. I, I have something that was not considered. I can show bias. Right. So unlike earlier in the process where they laid out the entire case before right. you went to arbitration, this is where you actually, when you're appealing a ruling, need right. to lay out the rationale clearly and not use the tactic that probably should have been done in the initial response to right. you. Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money Rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. So Lindell is now appealing the ruling. He's claiming basically that you're part of a cover-up, that the arbitrators are corrupt. Where are you in the process now? Well, I'm just waiting. My lawyers have hired a lawyer um, because they that's just a formality. They have to do that. I'm sure that the appeal is going to be turned down, but Lindell will delay it as much as he can and appeal that. He claims he'll appeal to the Supreme Court. This is not a case the Supreme Court will ever hear because it's not a precedent-setting case. It's just a simple contract case. But he'll keep doing that to delay everything until he runs out of money. You know, he's being sued by the voting machine manufacturers, and they're suing him for over a billion dollars each. By the way, he tried, his legal team tried to keep our hearing confidential. Hmm. And he filed a motion and we objected to it. And the arbitrators basically came back I mean, our, they agreed with our argument. Our argument was Mike Lindell can't keep this confidential when he's the one going around on television, national television, talking about the case, talking about the alleged voter fraud. But the argument of his lawyers was um, kind of funny. When they when he first got to make the argument, he said, well, Mr. Lindell is involved in a lot of other cases, and it could influence those cases if his testimony here gets out. And I thought to myself, the interpretation is, 
if he wants to say something different at those other cases under oath, he wants that ability to do that. And the arbitrator saw through that. So just to be clear, you haven't seen $5 million. No, I, you know, I used to say, I don't think I will see it, but my lawyers are so good. I haven't told you about Brian Glasser, the partner at the firm, if I can tell you a little bit about him. These are the kind of lawyers you need. And I, like I said, I've been in over 260 cases and yet the final scene, I hope they make my book into a movie because this will be a great final scene for the movie. I'm into it. I'd watch it. Uh, it was like a cross between my cousin Vinny and a few good men. <laughs> Brian is over six feet tall. He's got a deep booming voice with a West Virginia accent. And uh, Lindell's main witness uh, was testifying and on cross-examination, Brian started asking him about this alleged data. We, we had a chart up of all the data that they claimed was in what they gave me. And one by one, we went through them. And I won't go into the details because it, it'll take a while. But, you know, Brian starts saying, so you're telling me that most of this data doesn't even come from packet data. And he says, yes. And he says, and the remaining data doesn't tell you anything about the election, does it? He's, and, and the expert's trying to dance around it. Well, it could be. It's possible. I don't know. You know, maybe with further work. And uh, finally, Brian, his whole six feet Two is leaning over the, he's walked up to this guy who's sitting down and he says, sir, you cannot tell me with moral certainty that this has anything to do with the election. And the expert says something quietly. He says, I can't hear you, sir. He says, no, I can't. <laughs> Did you say, no, I can't? I just want to make sure I know what you're hearing. <laughs> it was beautiful. Their own expert had basically come around to agreeing with me. The deposition dance is a fascinating one. The, like, I don't yeah. recall, I don't know, is just so painful. I don't know how you've been going through this for so long. So do you think you'll ever see the money? So I didn't think so, just because I think Lindell's going to go broke from the other lawsuits. However, my lawyers are so good and so aggressive that I think we might see it. I mean, if anybody can do it, they can do it. The You know, Brian and his firm and carry uh, are just experts in these kind of, you know, uh, corporate litigations, breaking the corporate veil, piercing the corporate veil, and uh, and actually getting money. They've been very successful at it. So if anyone can do it, they can do it. So, I'm, you know, my fingers are crossed. So if you do get the money besides paying your lawyers probably a million or two million bucks out of that, what will you do with the rest of the money? So with my share, I've already started talking to some voter integrity groups. I want to make it clear that, so first of all, I think there was fraud in the 2020 election. The reason I think that, in fact, I'm certain of it, because every human endeavor has fraud. Um, anyone who says there's no fraud, and I really hate when people say, oh, there's no fraud in our elections, or it's insignificant. The problem is we don't know because we don't have the ability to measure it. Uh, and by fraud, you mean human error. You're, you're, right. You don't mean right. some widespread thing that Mike, was, Mike Lindell was trying to prove. Right. You just mean the fact that there was a margin of error. People are touching ballots and things and and inevitably something is going to go askew. Well, I do think there are people with bad intentions, too. How much they were able to get away with, I don't know. And, I don't right. and that's not specific to the 2020 election, right? Like that's right. fraud right. that happens well, in elections all the time in all countries. Right. But let me say that I think with the rules were put in place because of COVID, I think made made it more opportunities for fraud. But what I believe for is, error, 
That's right, and error, right, exactly. Yeah. I think the voting machine is very unlikely. So I'm trying to find voter integrity groups. And when I get my money, I want to support the best one that's going to actually look into these issues issues legitimately. But you're saying you want to look into the 2020 election specifically, not the 2016 election, not the 2012 election. I mean, using fraud, you understand, connotes that there was like Putin coming in or China coming in and there was some big orchestrated effort. You're essentially looking for human error, margin of error. Right. And so, you know, whether we apply it to the 2020 election, what I'd like to do would be great if I could do something to just put in. Look, I've talked to, uh, for example, a, a, a professor at Stanford who has proposed systems for, then, by the way, this has been going on since the 2000 election. And it used to be Democrats who were pushing for this. Now it's Republicans pushing for more um, ways of validating election votes. You know, I can tell you when I voted. Yeah, we have we all have nightmares, Bob, of the hanging right. chads. I mean, I covered that. I I right, still have right. nightmares. About well, it. I voted. You know, in 2020, I voted in Nevada, and I just thought this was ironic. I went into the polling place, went through the entire ballot, you know, on the electronic machine, and at the end, it gave me an error message, and I called someone over, and they said, "Oh, it didn't record it. You have to do it again." So, how many times is that happening, for example? And did it record two? My vote twice or just once? I have no way of knowing. So just to point out again, you're a conservative Republican. You participated in this competition. Perhaps you were torn politically about uh, doing this in the first place. I mean, I think Lindell probably saw this competition as the first step in overturning the election. You voted for Trump twice, I should say. So that's also what you wanted. Uh, well, were you conflicted I, I, in participating? No, no. Um for two reasons. Well, first of all, one, you know, so I belong to a group called No Labels, and we are Democrats and Republicans have come together hoping that the election is not between Biden and Trump. My feeling is that neither candidate is good for this country. But I voted for Trump as you know what I consider the lesser of two evils. And people can disagree with me, but I really don't want him in office. I'll be upfront about that. You don't want uh, but I also Trump in office. I don't want Trump. I don't want Biden in office. Do you, uh, Who do you want in office? I don't know. I mean, that's I, I'm not really sure at this point. Um, but but let me say that one thing that I've committed myself to is, is being ethical and finding the truth. And so, for example, I was called up years ago to be an expert on a case that was going to bring down one of my Republican heroes, a man I actually knew personally and had a lot of respect for. And they called me up and I said, you know, I, I know him and I contributed to his campaign. And uh, why are you asking me? And they said, well, you're the best in the country and we want the best. And I talked to friends and I thought about it. I think I talked to my rabbi about it. I mean, what do I do? I'm conflicted. But I have a policy that I will take every single case that comes to me and I will report the truth. And the truth is sometimes not good for my client. And I just tell them, you know, here's what I found and it doesn't support what you wanted to support. And in that case, I thought I can't break my rules just because this is someone who I respect. And I said also, if they find a different expert, a lot of experts, I hate to say this, a lot of experts will stretch the truth and, and some will break that, the truth. Um, and I really hate that. So That's I decided- did, he, did your rabbi tell you? You know, I think, yeah, you know, well, do what That's you think- That's that, this idea in Judaism that, you know, 
refers to different actions intended to that you should do to repair and improve the world overall. Right. So, you know, I made that decision and I decided that I will be truthful and honest and whatever I find, I will report. If you had to do this all over again, would you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you should ask me if I lose. I, I was involved in a case like this that I lost. If you ask me about that one, I'd say I'd do it all over again, but I would have made some changes. But this one I won. I don't know if I'll see the money, but I won. I got a lot of publicity. I brought this to national attention. So, yeah, I'm really happy with the outcome. We end all of our episodes with a tip that listeners can take straight to the bank. If a listener is debating taking someone to court over money, maybe it's an arbitration suit, maybe it's a small claims suit, what piece of advice would you give them on how to decide whether or not it's worth the money and the time? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. So if you're doing it out of a matter of principle, which I'm okay with, just make sure you've got the money to cover all the expenses, which can be really high. If you're doing it because you want to uh, get the money, you know, one thing I can tell you is if you get a lawyer to write a paper, to write a letter to the other side, that gets most people to the negotiating table. If they don't get to the negotiating table, if you file the legal papers, that brings almost everybody to the negotiating table. If you file the legal papers and they still don't want to negotiate, then you've got to be prepared for a long, expensive case. And, you know, that's a decision about how much do you care about principle and how much do you care about the money? More importantly, the time, right? Time is more valuable than money. We can always get more money. We can't get more time. I have friends who have gone through years long lawsuits and uh, whether or not they ultimately get money or not, they're most regretful that they wasted or spent so much time on this that they'll never get back. Right. Do you ever think about that? I do a lot. And that's why, look, most most times I go to court or threaten to go to court, just the threat, especially backed up by a lawyer, brings people to the negotiating table. It frustrates me. I, I like to say I've done more negotiations than any person on the planet. I've negotiated probably 300 contracts of my own and contracts for other people. Um, and what I found is what's frustrating to me is that when there's a disagreement over some kind of contract, people do, a lot of people don't want to negotiate. They just don't want to meet with you. And so the letter gets them to meet with you. Once they get, once they meet with you, you're likely to get a negotiation. And by the way, you have to give something up. <clears throat> and usually that's money. You know, I know some people say, well, they owe me, you know, X amount of dollars, $10,000. I'm not going to settle for less. You know what? Sometimes if you get two, you should be happy because it's better than nothing. And, and it's also better than spending years trying to get right. the 10 and maybe right. getting it or maybe not. Now, the main reason for moving forward all the way to the end is if you're doing it out of principle. And I admire people who do that. I do that myself. But you've got to make sure that you're going to cover the entire cost and not expect to get anything back. Unless you work on contingency. Do you have any tips for getting lawyers to work on contingency? It's hard. So I once had a lawyer, a big law firm working on contingency for me on a patent case. And the way I put it is after a year of working on contingency, I fired them because they were too expensive. Hmm. Um, the thing is, even zero cost can be bad if the lawyers are not doing a good job. Yeah. Or they're making it worse or messing right. it up. I would also say I recently hired a lawyer on contingency, and uh, I found this out in the process that you can negotiate your contingency as well. So it went from 
he sent me a contract for 30% contingency. And then I negotiated it down to, I think it was 20%. Well, everything's negotiable. In fact, I've got sometime in the future, I want to write a book on negotiations. Like I said, I've done a lot of them. And what a lot of people don't understand is that everything's negotiable. But I also believe it's better to have a win-win situation than a win-lose. I The best way to negotiate is to find out what the other party wants, figure out what they want that you don't care much about, mm -hmm. and give them what they want that you don't care about. And then they've won. They got something better, and it didn't matter that much to you. People don't seem to understand that. And it's not always money, by the way. I've, I've gone into negotiations with people and I've seen somebody try to negotiate for, you know, for a, a better money deal. But you realize that if you realize the other party wants respect or their name in a, on a paper or in a book or they want some publicity or whatever it is, you can trade that for the money because that matters more to them. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one -on -one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.